Good evening, everyone. I am delighted to be here to welcome all of you to the conversation with Lolita Tatami and Scott Schaefer. Lolita was born in Berkeley, California, far from her parents' southern roots. But her parents made sure that their household, which was fondly referred to as Louisiana West, maintained a definite non-California edge. She has always been intensely interested in her family stories, especially ones about her great-grandmother, Emily, a formidable figure who died with her life savings hidden in her mattress. So Lolita left her position at Sun Microsystems to immerse herself in researching her family's history. With more than a thousand documents in hand, she had no choice but to write about the amazing people with whom she became acquainted. The result was Cane River, her novel based on the lives of four generations of Creole slave women in Louisiana women from whom she descended. Her second book is Red River, which was published this, last, this year, in January of 2007. It's my pleasure to welcome both Lolita Tatami and Scott Schaefer. Well, good evening, everybody. Just uh, out of curiosity, a show of hands. Uh, how many of you have read the book? Whoa. Ooh. Okay. Well, you will have a chance to ask some questions as well, so bear with us. Um, I don't think I need to summarize the book. It sounds like, uh, like everyone <laughs> oh, this has, is great. Uh, almost Thanks. everyone has read it, but uh, we heard a bit of a summary there. Uh, this is a story of, of resilience. It's a story about the brutality of slavery. Uh, but also the resourcefulness of this family, your family, mm -hmm. uh, going back several generations. Um, I want to start at the end. Uh, your great-grandmother, Emily, uh, Grandma Teet, which yes. is short for Petite, yes. right? Yeah. Yes. Um, she died in 1936, about 12 years or so, I think, uh, after you were born. Before you were born, before. rather. Before you were born, before. sorry. <laughs> yeah, got to get that right. Thank you, Scott. Yeah. <laughs> I knew that. I uh, didn't mean to date you. Um, what did you hear about your, your great-grandmother growing up? I just heard superlatives. Everything was that she was elegant and she was gorgeous and she was vivacious and she was beautiful and she was amazing. And I also knew that she was color-struck. I knew that she had a little judgment uh, of people by their skin tone. And, and so I really didn't want to like her um, very much. But everyone had, had these fabulous stories that she was generous, that she cooked for everyone, that she made her own homemade wine. Um, and so gradually I got really drawn in to try to figure out why she was held in such high regard by everyone else, even though she had some southern attitudes that, that I personally didn't appreciate. She, you say she was uh, elegant and beautiful, and compared to no, no less a person than uh, Jacqueline Kennedy. Yeah, my mother, um, my mother often said, and this was, this was actually uh, a run-on phrase for her, where she would say, she was elegant, just like Jackie O. <laughs> and it, 
didn't make a lot of sense to me because I had done enough research to know that she was a little buzzed on her homemade wine every day and she dipped snuff and uh, she, she, uh, there's a, there was a story about her that she uh, was a very small woman. She was under five feet and she got on a cotton scale one day and she weighed herself and she was 99 pounds and she jumped off and she said, if I'd known I was that close, I wouldn't have spit out my tobacco. <laughs> so she had always just wanted to be 100 pounds. Yeah. And, um, and she, was, she was a very, very lively, wonderful woman that I came to appreciate more. Now, your family uh, is a mix of going way back slaves um, and their children, some of the, in many cases, the fathers were French farmers, French landowners. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk more about the relationships that they had because they were interesting and surprising to me in the book that some of the tenderness in a way that, uh, that came out of those relationships. But um, when you say that, that your great-grandmother had issues about skin color, mm -hmm. what do you mean? I mean that she um, inherently gave more weight to uh, African Americans that were lighter in skin color than those that were darker. And as I, as I did so much of my research, I uh, came to see this as a sign of the times and a sign of where she came from and a sign of the family and what the family had gone through. And very specifically, there were more opportunities that were open for children that were more fair than as they grew up and into adults. And they had, a, um, they had more of a chance to get a better job, to get a better education. And she, um, she gravitated towards that. So that's what I mean by color struck. And someone in the book, and maybe it was her, described it as bleaching the line. As you know, marrying or not marrying necessarily, but having children with white men and ending up with and, mixed and race kids. And getting more and more fair down through the generations. And yeah, and that I won't attribute to her. That was my, I called it bleaching the okay. line. But um, um, I should have attributed it. You wouldn't have known. You wouldn't have known, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, and, and, and that's a, sort of an interesting question about the book because it is based on in truth and fact and, and research that you did in Louisiana and probably family lore and other things. Uh, and yet there are conversations which obviously weren't recorded in any way and motivations that you had to construe and uh, phrases like bleach the line. Uh, how did you put yourself in the minds of these mostly women uh, but men as well? That was a process that, that took quite a lot of time. The, the book actually um, took three years to write, and that doesn't include the year and a half of research. So um, I had a, a lot of time to try to get it right. But I, I became these women, each in their turn. And when I sat down to write the book, uh, having actually absolutely no experience in writing, um, other than business plans, but when I, when I sat down to write the book, I actually was teaching myself how to do it 
by becoming each of these women and writing in a diary as if I was Emily, as if I was Suzette, as if I was Felamine, as if I was Elizabeth. And I did that talking about their daily lives and what I thought they would be thinking about. Um, and as I got more familiar with each one of these characters, who has a very specific personality in a very specific place, as they started to gel a little bit for me, then I threw them in a room together and I started to write dialogue between them. And of course it was made up dialogue, but I started to get more of a sense of who was in a power position and who was more articulate and, and who relied on emotion and who relied on manipulation. And, um, and it was really an iterative process, but in my head I became each one of the characters in the book, not only the women, but the men as well. Were there any characters who you, who, did you, who gave you the toughest time in terms of getting into their mindset? No question about it, Narcisse Fredieu. And uh, Narcisse Fredieu was my great-great-grandfather. And I have, um, I actually have a roots wall in my house where I have all the pictures that I have, I have blown up and I've, I've put them on the wall, all but his. I, I still to this day can't quite make myself do it. Um, but he was a character that was a bit of a mystery to me because he was, um, without him, my family, the female part of the family, would not have been able to get land. And that was incredibly important. Um, and I have, to, I, I have to thank him for that. I'm not sure I can forgive him for all the other things that he did, but uh, he really was beneficial uh, for, for the family. But I had a very tough time trying to reconcile his public views, his private views, the fact that he had a whole other family, <clears throat> um, and he had this as a side family, uh, the fact that he participated in some Ku Klux Klan kinds of activities. Uh, so it, that was a very tough one. Yeah, the, there are several scenes in the book where he is approaching uh, Felamine, uh, and she's very young at this point, uh, 14, 15, 16, right? Yes. And uh, clearly has interest in her, um, and she is a slave, uh, and he is a, a French landowner. How did you How did you sort of calibrate that? relationship in terms of, it was an alliance in a way. I mean, it was, he was forcing himself on her, and yet she saw opportunity in that relationship and took it. Well, the, the Cane River is really a blend of fact and fiction that I call faction. And um, it is one of the hardest incidents for, not incidents, but one of the, the hardest situations for me to reconcile was my great, great, great grandmother, Felamine, who had a child by Narcisse when she was young. He went off to the Civil War. She ended up, after he came back, having more children by him. And this was very difficult for me to understand because she was no longer a slave. 
she was then free and so that gave me a sense of what her character was in terms of exploiting opportunity and manipulating situations the best that she could and it gave me some indication of what he must have been like in order to in order to be subjected to that. He, as you suggested, did some horrible things. When the plantation that she and other family members, Suzette and Elizabeth, had been working on was dissolved, they were sold. And he saw to it that Philomene's boyfriend, Clement, was sent in a different direction. So basically he didn't have to compete with him. And they had a very tight bond, Clement and Philomene. It's hard to understand how she could forgive him and have another, you know, several children with him. It's not at all clear to me that she did forgive him. I think that she saw what she needed to do for her children and what she was willing to sacrifice for herself. But it's not clear to me that there was either love or forgiveness involved. Do you have a sense that there were moments in the book of joy that these families shared with one another, especially after the war? Do you have a sense of whether people who were living as slaves could have lives in contentment, a version of contentment? I wouldn't use the word contentment. And I wouldn't use the word contentment because that implies some sustained state over time. I would say that you, in even the worst of circumstances, you can grab some piece of joy from time to time. You can have solace. You can appreciate the fact that you have family and want to preserve that at whatever the cost is. But I'm not sure that I would ever call that contentment. The relationship between Narcisse and Felamine's children, the children they had together, was complicated. I mean, some of the kids would call him Papa. He had a whole other family where he was the open father to them and lived as their father. I was surprised at the level of sort of tenderness, in a way, that was expressed between him and some of the kids, and even to a certain extent Felamine at times. It almost made him a more sympathetic character than one might imagine. How hard was that for you? Oh, very. Very, very difficult. But I believe that it's very, it's a, living with those sorts of dualities, I think, is particularly indicative of the South. Because you do have to live with contradictory notions. And that's what I believe that they were doing, is living with those contradictory notions. Before writing the book, of course, you went down to Cane River, to Louisiana, did a lot of research. What kind of reception did you get down there? What kind of obstacles did you find? Well, it depends on which decade you're talking about. So I did research, actually, starting in, from the time I was very small. And we went back every summer, even though I was born here in Berkeley, as a matter of fact, we went back every summer 
to Louisiana. And I was always interested and did a lot of um, both formal and informal research starting in the 50s and the 60s. And I will tell you that when I first started that research and a lot of the research that I did in, the, in that time period um, was uh, I was largely unaided by any official source. So I would go to the courthouse and I would ask for records and they would not give them to me. Mm. Um, it was just, and it was very clearly, it was very clear that they weren't going to give them to me. Um, what kind of records were you asking for? I was looking for land records. I was looking for records of the Freydews. And the concept was that there were black Freydews and there were white Freydews. And there just was not going to be much of an acceptance of me setting out to prove that they were commingled, even though everyone knew that they were. I mean, again very southern thing. Um, as I went into the 70s, people started to begrudgingly give me those records. As I went into the 80s, it was just, you know, just sort of uh, fine, Routine. fine, fine. Um, as I went into the 90s, it was easier. Now, after Oprah, let me tell you, <laughs> that was a whole different that was a whole different, people were chasing me down the street saying, well, I have a record that I think you might be interested <laughs> in. It, I mean, it really was almost to that point. And it wasn't really, it wasn't only that the people that were um, managing those records, e either in libraries or courthouses, had changed. Some of these were the same people, was which was so interesting to me. I mean, it was just fascinating to see that not only that the times had changed, but some of the people themselves had changed. It was no longer acceptable. It was no longer unacceptable. Uh, well, uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, one of the records you found, and which you have reprinted in the book, is uh, an 1850 bill of sale from the plantation that uh, um, uh, Philomene and Elizabeth and uh, and others were working on, and uh, it's quite extraordinary. Uh, it lists them by name, their age, uh, and just as an example here, it's a, a slave, Elizabeth, Negress, age 48, not guaranteed, sold to Narcisse Fredieu for $800. Uh, slave, Suzette, Negress, uh, Negress uh, age 26, and child, Philomene Mulatto, age 9, to, to Joseph uh, Fer Fer Ferrier mm -hmm. for $1,400. What... Um, what went through your mind as you f as you first found this bill of sale and, and looked at it and read it through? That is that was a pivotal pivotal document, um, and I had a lot of emotions that just got suspended in the moment that I found that. It took <clears throat> it really it took 18 months to find that document. I didn't even know I was looking for it. I just knew I was looking for something that would help me to identify my great 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 grandmother. This document was the first time that I pushed back and got a bonus grandmother out of it to boot, um, where Suzette had a name for the first time. I knew Emily because I had stories of Emily. I knew her mother, Felamine, by name, even though I didn't have very many stories about her. I didn't know Felamine's mother's name, 
and I certainly didn't, had never heard of Elizabeth. When we found that, and I say we because I had to hire a professional genealogist to help me find this, that, that document was in uh, 10,000 unindexed records that they had to go through page by page by page, and the records, a majority of those records were in very, very badly preserved Creole French, mm. which is why I couldn't go through them because I would have missed something. Mm. I only do English. But the emotions um, of actually finding that were first joy, I mean, just absolute, I was so thrilled. I cannot even tell you how happy I was to um, at last be delivered these ancestors in this way. And they had names and they had a place. And then to go from that to just fury, just real anger that people were selling people. Yeah, and in, in different directions to different people, yes. families being broken up. Well, I'd like you to, if you don't mind, uh, read a passage uh, that describes some of what led to the to this sale, um, and uh, then we can talk about it afterwards. And just to set it up, uh, this is uh, after the rose dew, the plantation had been, was being dissolved, and uh, and the slaves were being sold. And this is actually before the sale itself, where the assessors come in and they put a price on everything, and they line the slaves up. <clears throat> All of the men went first, oldest to youngest. Then it was the women's turn. Only mothers with babies in their arms were allowed to come before the assessors' table as a family group. The process went smoothly, carefully, once everyone understood what was expected. A dollar figure was suggested and debated among the assessors. When they came to agreement, they marked it down in the book. A special notation was made for any defect, physical or mental. On auction day, it was honorable to provide full disclosure among gentlemen, seller to buyer, of any, of any damaged merchandise. Elizabeth heard each of her children assessed, as well as herself and her husband. The overseer winked and smiled at his betters behind the table, proud to display his knowledge. A strong, healthy buck, prime field, no injuries, strong as an ox, no defects, no less than $1,500. He has the hernia, pulls up now and again, past prime but useful to get others to work. With the fiddling, he should bring twelve to 1300 Auntie's getting slow, but good for the house and cooking. 800 would be fair. Deaf and dumb, but you won't find better with a hoe. The lash gets her attention if there's need. Bidding should start at $900. The uppity one is set aside, she and her daughter both. The assessors kept steadily at their work until each one of the slaves was accounted for. They finished as the sun disappeared behind a dense thicket of pine trees to the west. The slaves avoided looking at one another after the inventory. They trudged back to the quarter against the murky darkness in silence, shoulders hunched and jaws slack. Even the children did not speak. They made fires and quickly prepared the evening meals. Some hardly ate at all, wanting just to go to bed and close their eyes until the morning light. Elizabeth and Gerasime lay down on their narrow pallet pushed up against the far corner of their one-room cabin. We have dollars on us now, Gerasime said, 
We always had dollars on us, Elizabeth said. This is different. The sale is certain. They lay on the pallet without speaking, Gerasime's chest to Elizabeth's back, his knees tucked up behind hers under the threadbare blanket. Finally, Elizabeth thought he had fallen asleep until she heard his vo voice punch through the darkness. You've been a good wife. If we don't end up on the same place, I don't want another. I'm through too. We made some fine children, wife. We did, husband. When the plantation bell rang out the next morning, they were still folded together in the same position. And they were indeed sold to different uh, owners. And uh, you write in the book that uh, mothers and fathers were most likely to be deliberately separated. Uh, why? Well, they, there, there, was, there was something about the talent pool but, uh, or the labor pool and where labor was needed. But also there was safety in instability and instability um, uh, and familiarity. And so things were very often shaken up, where children were sold, where, where parents were sold, and they were sold away from one another. In this case, in Cane River, which is about a 19-mile stretch, they were sold up and down the river, so they didn't totally drift out of one another's lives. But it really wasn't easy to stay in touch. Yeah. Um, the a character, Felamine, not a character, she's your great, great, great grandmother, Felamine, uh, you gave her the, the power to see visions into the future. And uh, initially, those visions seemed to be quite true in terms of predicting the future. But then she began to see these, what she called glimpsings, uh, as a way to manipulate uh, Narcisse Perdue by telling him, I see this in your future and it was things that she wanted to see in her future and in her children's future, uh, which he then took to be, you know, he better get to work on that. Uh, how did you come up with that? And was that based uh, in fact at all? Um, I'm so not going to tell you. <laughs> a, lot of, uh, a lot of what's in the book um, are based on family stories. A lot are based on research, and some are made up. And one of the things that, that um, anything that is in the book with a caption, it's a figure, there's a photo, there's a document, all of those things I will, I will share with you are absolutely real. Anything that doesn't have a caption, I'm not going there. <laughs> the fact that you chose to give her this power, what, what did it say about her in terms of how you viewed her? I actually believe that she had to be very manipulative to get what she got when she had so little to bargain with. And she did end up in a position of power which was amazing because she was a former, first a slave and then a former slave, which was amazing because she was a woman, which was amazing because she was poor, but yet she really had a lot of control over her environment, far more than you would think. 
And to me, the only way that she could do that, she had to be very smart, she had to be very determined, she had to be very creative, and I believe that she was very manipulative. After the the war ends, uh, the family is reunited, which is one of uh, Felamine's glimpsings. She saw the family back together by and large, although some people were missing. Um, What did it take, do you think, to pull all those people back together under one roof? or at least into the same area? On the same piece of land, yeah. actually. They, they all came back and reunited on her land, which is just beyond amazing. Now, one of the, the, the agrarian system lends itself to that because it's, it's all about labor. And, and to actually have a piece of land, you need people to work it. And if they're family, that makes a lot of sense and they're people that you can trust and you understand who they are. But even so, everyone in the family had been just scattered from hither to yon through sales, through, through movement, and for them to all come back together had to be just a tremendous desire to keep that family unit intact. And it wasn't just direct family, it was siblings and you know, it, w- it was extended family, and I think that it was really tough to do. Did that have a has that had an impact on your current day family? I mean, the fact that uh, Elizabeth uh, Emily was so uh, part of your family lore and uh, and that reuniting that occurred did that pull your family closer together in later generations after her? Yeah, and I think that that's. Um, I, I also think that that's. Uh, it's a way of thinking. So this is, this is a different line of family, but the thought process is the same. When my father left Louisiana to come to California, he came by himself. He, had, he was married. He had two children already. I wasn't yet born. Uh, but he came. He got a job. He sent money back. When he had enough, then my mother came with the two children. And then when he saved enough money, he sent money back, and he brought his brother over. And when he had enough money, he sent money back and brought his other brother over. And I think that that is a concept that isn't just Louisiana or the South. It really is a concept around the family unit and the importance of that unit. Yeah. Um, as you have been out over the past few years touring uh, and talking about this book, what kind of reaction have you had, particularly you know, in places like Louisiana and Alabama and Georgia? It's really been gratifying. Now, I, I have to assume that those people that would be upset don't turn out. <laughs> this is a good thing. Um, but those people that turn out have just really, uh, they've been interested in genealogy. They've been interested in their own family tree. They've been interested in the, the concepts What surprised me the most, without question, what surprised me the most as I was doing my initial touring with this were the number of people who would come up to me, you know, after after everything was over, and they would say, you told my story. This is my story. And I would um, be very gratified about that especially if I understood, if I looked up and it was an African-American woman and, I, and, who said, and from Louisiana who said, you told my story. 
But I would look up sometimes, and it would be a man, or it would be uh, a Vietnamese woman, an immigrant. It would. Be, there were other people who said the details were different, but this whole thing about being marginalized and then having to decide whether you're going to assimilate and what your children are going to do and what you're willing to sacrifice for your children, that's my story too. And that has um, just heartened me hmm. greatly. Race is um, a difficult topic for our country and it's, a, it's an ongoing conversation that happens in fits and starts sometimes. Um, we have a African-American running for president, Barack Obama. And one of the interesting charges that's been leveled against him from some is that he isn't black enough. Uh, what do you make of that? Oh, dear. <laughs> well, that just is, is an understatement. It's annoying. Um, I, there, the, what does that mean? I don't even know what it means. Truth, I do know what it means. I know what it means. I just don't want to accept the concept. If you are what you are, and the, the concept that you need to act in a very prescribed way um, doesn't mean that you can embrace or accept change, or you can be adaptable enough for the future, from my perspective. And, and I just am dismayed when, the, when those sorts of charges are leveled. You can dislike someone. You can not like their policies. You can disagree with them. But don't say you're not black enough. That just is absurd. How do you think of knowing your, your own history and having delved into it so deeply and doing it in a second book about your dad's side of the family, how do you, what, how do you, what do you think about your own skin color and your own racial identity? How do you think of it? I think of it as, well, I, I self-identify as African American. I don't, uh, I assume that everyone else does too. Um, and uh, that's the way I think. That's the prism through which I view the world. I hope that that doesn't preclude me from having broad views, but it is one of the prisms through which I look at the world, the same way that uh, I'm a woman and I have to weigh, and weigh that impact and I think of things in those terms as well. Mm. And I'm um, almost AARP age and so I have to think in those terms as well. I mean, it's just a whole series of ways of looking at the world. Before you wrote the book, you were working uh, at Sun Microsystems in Silicon Valley. You had a very nice job as a vice president. It is not, Silicon Valley, uh, a bastion of African-American workers, uh, especially not at the level you were working at. How did you deal with race? Did it come up at all in your job? Well, it did not overtly. Um, it didn't much overtly. and. Uh, I, my view was always uh, to refuse to acknowledge it if it did. Um, if it came up in some sort of negative way, and that uh, usually the negative way wouldn't be um, a racist comment, it would be lowered expectations of what I could do. 
And I just refuse to acknowledge that. Uh, if, if there's something that you need done, I was the person to do it. And just get out of my way. Help or get out of my way. One of those two. I, I don't care which one. Just one of those two. And then I would just sort of, um, I would just sort of blow through it. And uh, it's not something that I was willing to devote a lot of my energy toward uh, unless it was unless it was overt. And in those cases, then I would address it directly. How did they react when you told them you were going to leave to go write, you know, to research your family history and, and write a book? Well, I actually did not leave to research my family history. I was doing research, but I didn't leave specifically to do that. I left to find myself. <laughs> and that's just where I found it. Um, but I, that there, it was surprise. It was just absolute surprise because I did not, um, I didn't have a concrete plan. My only concrete plan was that I was going to not work for a year. And I didn't take a sabbatical. I just, I, I, wanted, I wanted to burn the bridge, not in a bad way, but I wanted to not have that soft landing. Um, and I wanted to just be out there for one entire year, not knowing what was going to come next, and having to just step into the void. Try to explain that to people. It's really, really tough. Maybe we can ask uh, the audience if they have some questions. And while you're, may just raise your hand if you have a question. Uh, I think there's one over here. And before you uh, get to her, uh, have you heard? Well, let me ask you a different way. Now that you've been away from Silicon Valley, how does it look to you? Can you imagine ever going back? You know, if you if you make declarations, <laughs> it can really bite you. Um, so of course I could imagine going back to Silicon Valley. This is on television. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't. I can't. I, I, for, there are a couple of reasons. I could not go back because I'm, I just don't have that mindset anymore. And the things that have become very important to me are not necessarily in sync with those things that would need to be important for me to be um, successful. Where did our microphone go? Oh, yes. There you go. Oh, yeah. Could you talk a little bit? Um, I think one of, of the many things that were disturbing, I think one was that to have literally been raped and then yet to love the child. And I would think hate the father. And, and how did you play that? You did it very nicely. But it seemed to me that would be a big stretch. Uh, it would be a big stretch. But it happened a lot. Um, and again, it's having to live with dichotomy. It's having to live with things that contradict one another. And I know, I know that I grew up on stories, and one of the morals of which was always, you love your child no matter what. You know, you love your child no matter what. So that piece of it, I have no stretch whatsoever. Uh, in trying to figure out the the how you feel about the father is 
is more of a stretch, but you see that even in, um, uh, I'm, I'm thinking Patty Hearst. I'm, I'm thinking of, of people who have captors and come to sort of love their captors kind of thing. Um, you adapt to the situation in which you're placed, I believe. And I don't believe that, I don't believe that my ancestors loved the people that raped them. I do believe that over the generations that my, grand, my great-grandmother Emily did love a Frenchman who courted her. And that was a different kind of relationship. But I wanted to show all of those relationships, and I had four generations to work with. It's also hard, isn't it, to, to, to judge or even understand something that happened back then based on our, the, you know, the prism that we look through today. The, and that was, that was one of the most difficult things in the writing of this book. But, you know, my first draft, trust me, was so through 20th century eyes. Um, and it was how I would react if I was placed in those situations. I did a lot of reading. I did a lot of uh, um, research, nonfiction, and a lot of fiction reading to just try to understand that era, that time, the relationships, um, to try to get a sense of what it was like to live then. And then I transported myself back and tried to shed a lot of that 20th century-ness. Did you get any criticism from African Americans uh, that you didn't treat slavery harshly enough? Um, I have gotten some. A and it hasn't been overwhelming, but I have gotten some. But I had, um, uh, I had actually uh, very definitively uh, done a mantra. I had a little three-by-five index card that I put in my writing room. And it said, no whips, no chains because I did not want to write the same book that had been written before. And to me, the greatest sin of slavery wasn't whipping. The greatest sin of slavery was breaking up families. And I knew that if I put in a lot of scenes of whipping and you know the, the things that people are familiar with seeing, that they would immediately gravitate to that and they would lose the concept of families trying to preserve themselves and how important that was to them. And that's what I wanted to remain. The emotional damage. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes, over there. Yeah, one of your statements uh, about two minutes ago was kind of a segue to what the, I, I heard you speak once before about Cane River over at Borders, a few blocks or a few, about a mile from here. Um, you talked about that you had to revise and, and go through a number of revisions in the writing process. And I'd like to, if you, if you could just kind of explain in your own words what that was like from the first uh, to how many uh, revisions you had to do. And I was especially interested because, because I'm an aspiring uh, writer, which probably many people are. Yeah, the, the, um, it actually, uh, Cane River, I think this number is right. Um, it was 14 drafts, and, and that means starting from the first word to the last word and going all the way through and touching everything. And I rewrote it 14 times. Uh, my greatest fear in the beginning was um, after draft one and draft two that I would get hit by a bus and somebody would say, what was she thinking? Um, 
But each draft, I, uh, I was polishing the craft, but I was also leaching out a lot of the anger um, or political agendas or um, I was polishing the characters. I was making it authentic. I was making it believable. I was trying not to preach. And so I, each draft, I was trying to up-level the game and make it more and more compact and um, more readable. And so with each successive draft, it became more about the readers than it was about me just putting the story down. What kind of feedback did you get from family who was reading the drafts, or didn't you ask them to read it? Oh, family did not, no, family didn't read drafts along the way. Um, my sister, actually, that's not true. My sister did. And my sister is always my first reader because I know that she will say, that's great. And <laughs> you got to have it. you got to have it. In the beginning, when it's very fragile, that's what you need. Give it to Joni. <laughs> week later, that's great. Okay, so, and then you do it again and you do it again. But the, she was actually as excited about the stories as I was. My, my mother was really um, very uh, upset that I wanted to tell this story. She did not want me to tell this story. Why? She didn't want me to tell this story for two reasons. One is she had spent her entire life um, making sure that I didn't have to look back to slavery, that I had risen above that. And that's how she viewed it. I had risen above that. And for me to look backwards and get stuck in that time that she considered a sort of shameful um, just made no sense to her. And then the second piece of that was that these were family stories, and she could not understand why I would put family business in the street. Airing the laundry. Yeah, I, and I get that. I just didn't listen, but I got it. I mean, I understood it. Did she get over it? She did. <laughs> Oprah helped. Yes. <laughs> Considerably. Uh, yes. Yes, we are. Hi. Um, I'm sorry, I haven't read the book yet. I checked it out of the library here. There was one copy, oh, so. <laughs> and I made sure to get here. But um, I hope you don't mind if I can make a comment first. Um, you know, as an African-American woman whose mother, uh, my mother, Ruby Parker, was very light-skinned. And it's funny, this is the uh, beginning of Days of the Dead next week where people set up altars and pay tribute to their loved ones who've made that transition to the spirit world. And I have an old picture of my mother when she had brown hair, which I don't even remember. And then I have an older picture of her in her senior years. Um, she died two years ago. And I know my mom was from Tallahassee, Florida. And being very light, um, she passed once in a while. And I know when she told me that, my first reaction, you know, as a child of the 60s was just, ugh. You know, I was really repulsed. But the older I get and the more I think about it, it makes a lot of sense. What she would do is she would go to restaurants that would not serve blacks in Tallahassee, Florida, where she was from. And she would be able to buy food for her and her cousin, who was brown-skinned and could not get anywhere near the place. And they'd buy the, she'd buy the food, and they'd go off and laugh about it, you know. Well, my, I will tell you that my, my mother, and again, this is my mother's family, but my mother was fair enough to pass. She never, she never um, went to bed passing. She never 
spent a night passing, but there were occasions when she just didn't declare what she really was. And one of those occasions was needing to go to the doctor and not having that kind of care available for an African-American child. And so she passed in order to do that. She, in order to get a job, she did that. But again, it was very specific, and it wasn't a denial of her heritage. It was in order to get something, in order to make something happen. And that is the realization that I came to, that that was just a reality. It was a reality of the time. It also does make you realize how silly the notion of race is in a way, that someone's assumptions about you can change the way they feel about you so much. It's ridiculous. And willing to give something here and willing to not give it, and you're exactly the same person. How are you different as a result of writing this book? And then can you tell us what led to writing your last book? I'll start with the second question first. And I wrote the last book because I had done all of the research for both my mother's and my father's side of the family together, but it was too much to contain in one book. And I decided to split them into two. So I already had in mind that that's what I was going to do. And I did the first. I did Cane River first because my mother was still living. And I wanted her to be able to appreciate and see it. And my father had already passed. And so that's what got me from book one to book two. I already knew what I was going to do. And it changed me tremendously. It changed me. It opened, you know, not to get too much psychotherapy going on here, but it just really opened me up in many ways. And it made me far less, and this isn't racial, far less black and white, so that I started living a lot more in gray because I had to put myself in everybody's shoes for so long that suddenly I wasn't able to just compartmentalize as much as I had done before. In doing the research for your father's side, I'm wondering if you came across any of the descendants of the people who killed Emily's husband, Joseph Billis. Yes. Well, that is a matter of conjecture of who exactly did it. I put forth in Cane River my point of view, which is not proven. I believe it's true, but it's not proven. And, yes, there are still descendants of those folks that live in the town. And you met them? They don't come out to my meetings. Have you had conversations with them? I actually have not had conversations, but I have heard of some distant relatives of theirs who just consider the whole thing sort of colorful history at this point. Yes. I'm just kind of curious. A couple years ago after he died, it came to light that Senator Strom Thurmond had a parallel family, even though he had been a segregationist and so forth. I wonder 
When you first heard that, what were your feelings and thoughts? Um, there was such a lack of surprise. Um, that it that was just so common in the South. It was just so incredibly common that that it was no surprise at all. You know, there there was a protocol, and when you grow up in a certain way, you don't really even think about it. But there was a protocol in a lot of Southern towns where there is a man, and he has. Uh, an official family and he has a side family or two side families or whatever it is. And the protocol is that if you are on a public street, you know, if you're walking down the street, you don't acknowledge one another. I mean, you just don't say anything. And you might actually converse, and you might not, but you might converse behind closed doors, but you never do it in public. Um, and I know that that happened with my mother's family a lot because they were so fair. Um, but, but if you, you got whooped as a child if you said something to Uncle Billy kind of thing. Um, and so there was that dynamic that has just so many protocols attached to it. Um, and so when that came out, it, it just wasn't a surprise. It, it also wasn't a surprise with, with um, who was it, Cheney and, and, uh, Obama. and Obama. Oh. I love the line, though, that Obama's campaign issued a statement saying, well, every family has its black sheep. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I actually have two questions, um, one being, how did your use of fiction help you navigate what perhaps could be very painful in the fact, the fact and um, truths that were unearthed during your, re your writing of this book. How, how did yourself. you use fiction? Was that what she said? Yeah, you're used, how did you use fiction to help navigate the pain and some of the truth? And um, the second question is, this is a personal story as much as it is a universal story as much as it is a discourse on race, given all those things, how are you navigating many people's desire to have you uh, stand as a spokesperson for, black per for the black race in, in, in fielding tangential questions or um, comments that take away from the universality and the person the very private person, um, personal aspect of it for you? Yeah, I, I um, very often, anyone that knows me knows that I very often preface comments that I have with, I am not speaking for all black folks. And then I will give an opinion. Um, because that is a fallacy. I'm not. I'm speaking for myself. So you can ask me whatever, and either I will choose to answer or I won't. Um, but And if I do, you just have to be aware that it's one response. Um, and then your first question was the, the using fiction. I actually believe that fiction, I, I made a conscious choice not to do this as nonfiction. Too many negatives in there. I made a conscious choice to do this as fiction uh, because I think you can get at the truth better through fiction 
than you can nonfiction. Uh, and it's too easy to shoot down nonfiction if you have a slight fact wrong or um, something happens on a Tuesday instead of a Thursday and then you discount the whole thing. And what I wanted was I wanted to relay the emotional content, content and import of this time and this place in our country's history. And fiction lent itself very well to doing that. And as far as navigating the pain of it, it was still painful. And it would have been painful no matter how I had done it. I actually think it was more painful doing it through fiction because I really wanted to capture the emotion of it, which meant that I really had to deliver myself up to that emotion. Um, but it was worth it to me. And it was because so much of African-American um, stories are verbal, I was so intent on putting something down in writing from a different point of view. We have time for one more question, and then Lolita is going to be out in the lobby signing books. Yes, sir. I was um, had an opportunity to be in uh, Horn Lake, Mississippi, earlier this year in the summer, and um, I was at a hotel with my family, and for all intents and purposes, Jim Crow was gone. Um, this was at a time when there was a Little League tournament, baseball tournament, and Children were playing with children of all races. Um, the accommodations were also integrated, supermarkets and so forth. And then I had an occasion to drive farther down into the Delta along Highway 61, and I stopped in a um, diner, and uh, the most egregious racial epithet was used in the course of a conversation with one of the locals. And this was a, a woman who I, I estimated was probably born around 1965. She was in her 40s. And, and I wondered what I was seeing. I mean, through your lenses, you could comment on that. Um, ostensibly, um, things were better. Progress had been made. But on one level, apparently, this woman hadn't heard the story. I'm not speaking for all black people here, <laughs> but um, actually, that's I have tremendous hope and tremendous dismay at the same time. It's the constant place that I live uh, because it's not gone. It absolutely is not gone. We have made tremendous progress and you see something like that and it's not an anomaly. It's, it is there. Uh, it will be there for generations, I believe. And it's, it, you think it's died out and you see it coming back in people that are young. You see it in people in their 20s sometimes. Um, and I, I don't really have a great light to shed on it other than to say, from my perspective, all you can do is to influence your own sphere. That's all you can do. You can reach out and you can do what you do and hope that that's enough to try to counterbalance what is definitely still out there. All right, well, I invite all of you to join Lolita out in the lobby after this. Thank you all for coming and thank you for writing such a great book. Thank you.